Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Criminal Conduct. Eli Washtock hired lawyers, private investigators, and forensic experts to try to uncover new evidence in the Michelle O'Connell case. He was very near close to having a conclusion to the multiple investigations that he commissioned, and he'd spent tens of thousands of dollars. And I get this call from Ed, and Ed said, hey, this is young man, he wants to investigate your daughter's death. And he said, I think we should meet him. All of a sudden, I had like a new hope. But St. John's County Sheriff David Shore says that Jeremy Banks is innocent and Michelle's death was self-inflicted. The case was a suicide, tragic suicide. That truthfully could have been predicted if people had been paying attention maybe more closely. Jeremy Banks had nothing to do with that case. Some say the narrative is all wrong. If you look at the facts, there's no way Jeremy could have done it. It's really, really shocking to me how few people are so opinionated on it, but have never read all the evidence. He said, I've got money for days, and it was his intention to solve the case. And he spent tens of thousands of dollars hiring investigators, forensic experts, computer experts, people who were knowledgeable about Facebook, people who were knowledgeable about surveillance. That was St. Augustine community activist and government watchdog, Ed Slavin, talking about what Eli told him with regards to his financial situation. Eli gave Patty and Ed the impression that he could self-finance an investigation into Michelle's death, but in reality, Eli was an auto body mechanic, earning an honest living. Here's Eli's friend, Matt Utek again. He was working as an auto body tech for a dealership. And he, had, he started his own business doing, running auto body repair center. He knew a lot about uh, working on cars. Yep. Uh, was his business successful? Yeah. I mean, he was able to save up enough money to pack up his family and move to Florida because they went down vacation and decided they loved it down there. So he, he went and he closed his doors. I mean, he was, he was doing pretty good when he closed his doors up there. And then was he working when he was down there? What was he doing down in Florida? Yeah, as far as I know, he was doing some... We worked at a few different auto body places. We were able to find one body shop where Eli Washtock worked when he moved to St. Augustine, Florida. All right, we are at Gerber Collision and Glass. This is where uh, we believe that Eli used to work because I called and asked for Eli and the woman said that he's not here. So it sounded like she knew him. So well, let's see what happens. We spoke with the office manager who worked with Eli. So you, you, you know who we're of him? Did you hear he'd been murdered? Oh, you, had, oh, you hadn't heard that? No. He was really private person. I mean, they don't have any suspects or anything? Or? They're not, yeah, not, well, that's what we're, we're trying to find out, like, you know, who would want, want to hurt him? Who would have wanted to hurt him? He's yeah. just easygoing. We explained to the office manager that Eli was personally financing the investigation into Michelle O'Connell's death. He hired all types of experts, like lawyers experts and lawyers. And so we started looking at that because Eli was looking into that case. Uh, and so he had spent like a big portion, like he dedicated his life to a lot of that money. case. A lot of money. 
The office manager looked at us confused. Yeah, no, we yeah, are talking about the, the same guy. Yeah, yeah. 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 A lot of money. That boy lived from paycheck to paycheck when he worked here. Because he would, his child support, he would, you know, say, well, I gotta pay my child support. Sometime by the time he did that, he didn't have anything left. She told us Eli lived paycheck to paycheck and had very little money left over at the end of the month. John, she seemed pretty surprised that Eli could spend this much cash. She said that the Eli she knew was broke. I looked it up. The average body shop technician in Florida makes around $50,000 a year. I can't imagine he had a lot of disposable income. If this office manager is right and Eli was struggling financially, where did he get all this money? Eli didn't work at this body shop at the time of his death. We couldn't verify where he was working or if he was even working in January of 2019. Other than those connected to his work on the Michelle O'Connell case, no one who knew Eli thought he had any money. Eli lived in the St. Augustine area for about 10 years, and all of the properties we found linked to him were rental properties. Was there some other source of income? According to court records, when Eli died, his net worth was less than $1,000. He had a storage unit and a red 1996 Mustang. These items went to his two children, but since they are minors, his estate went to his ex-girlfriend, Katrina Van Knocker, the mother of his children. Several people mentioned that Eli either carried or had a large sum of cash. However, none of this cash was ever recovered from his condo. Interestingly, Eli didn't have a will, but according to several witnesses, he made many requests about what he would like done if he died. Eli spent thousands of dollars pursuing what he believed to be justice for Michelle. But where did this money come from? It appears cash entered into Eli's life from some unknown source. the creators of Twisted and Pretend, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is John. Hey, John, this is David Shore from St. Augustine, Florida. Sheriff Shore, how are you? I'm good. Am I calling you at a bad time, John? No, I, I can speak with you now. Absolutely. When we first started this investigation, we never expected Sheriff Shore to agree to speak with us. In fact, we called the sheriff's spokesman and were repeatedly turned down for an interview. We even showed up one morning at the St. John's County Sheriff's Office and were told no one was available to talk. So... I was more than a little surprised when I received this call. How would you describe your relationship with Jeremy Banks? Uh, professional. 
didn't, didn't you have like a relationship with his, either his father and. Yes. I knew his father, which I didn't even know that when I hired the kid, I knew his father uh, 35 years ago, he died prematurely from a heart attack, a heart problem. And so did you take over any kind of like mentoring role with Jeremy? No, no. Like I said, he worked here two or three years. I didn't even know who his dad was. The conversation quickly turned to the Michelle O'Connell case. Why did you decide to turn the case over to FDLE? Well, at the time we were doing, we, at the time, John, we were using FDLE for our officer involved shootings. That was pretty much standard operating procedure for us. But the Michelle O'Connell case left a bad taste in his mouth. And I decided after that, no, no, we can investigate our own. We can call balls and strikes. I'm not going to leave the fate of my people up to organizations that I have little or no faith in their ability to conduct a thorough, complete and accurate investigation. I know my people can do that. Sheriff Shore told me that at one point he took the state's investigation seriously. I actually did think that at one point. Okay. Because I sent him home and suspended him for pay, with pay for nine months. But that quickly changed. Sheriff Shore said that the FDLE agent looking into the case was biased, inexperienced, and botched the whole thing. And I did that because Mr. Rusty Rogers reported to everybody that there was high-velocity blood spatter. Now, Rogers calls it splatter. Rogers was a drug cop. He was never a death cop. He was never a homicide cop. Invest, drug investigators are the worst investigators. Do you know why? Because they start with rumors and then they go try to prove it, like John Taylor's dealing drugs. In death cases, John, it's just the opposite. You, gotta, you can't listen to nothing. You've got to let the evidence take you. He came in and reported to us early on that there was high-velocity high blood spatter on Mr. Banks' shirt. That turned out to be made up. Just like his, te- just like the erroneous text message that he made up. It's pretty obvious that Sheriff Shore was not pleased with how Rusty Rogers conducted his investigation. Sheriff Shore wrote a 153-page report detailing his grievances against Rusty Rogers, Rogers' supervisor, and the FDLE's overall running of the investigation into the death of Michelle O'Connell. The report slammed Rogers' techniques. The sheriff accused Agent Rogers of distorting evidence and facts influencing witnesses, and unlawfully searching Jeremy Banks's phone without a proper search warrant. The report goes on and on. Sheriff Shore said that almost immediately, Rusty Rogers referred to this case as a homicide. He claimed that Rogers had tunnel vision and had, quote, inappropriate relations with the O'Connell family. Sheriff Shore also claimed that Agent Rogers presented and used false and misleading information in order to obtain search warrants. If you knew the family's background, if you knew the victim's background, that poor girl, if you knew her background, uh, and if you read her digital suicide note that was texted over the text, and, 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 you know, and by the way, John, you're a smart guy, do some, do some research and see how many people are murdered by an intraoral gunshot wound where you stick a gun in somebody's mouth and pull the trigger. You know how hard that is to do, John? How many people are murdered that way? Yeah, it's not easy. And he's absolutely right. It's very rare for an intraoral gunshot wound to be the result of homicide. Very rare. 
And why is that? Because it's almost impossible to force a gun into someone's mouth. Intraoral gunshot wounds, which every medical examiner agrees was Michelle's cause of death, are much more frequently associated with suicide than with homicide. There's been a lot of disagreements in this case regarding evidence. We spoke with Darren Dake, an independent medical death examiner with no ties to this case. How common is it for women to shoot themselves in the mouth? Very rare. It does happen. I've worked many of them, but on, on a large scale, very rare. Normally, women don't shoot themselves. They normally overdose if they're going to commit suicide or hang themselves normally. If they do shoot themselves, they generally shoot themselves in the chest, in the heart, and that's for, normally for vanity reasons. Again, never say never because there are women who shoot themselves in the mouth and in the head, but it's just rare. And how common are intraoral gunshot wounds in homicide cases? Not that common. I cannot think of any that I've worked or that I've read about. I, I mean, I've got 34 years under my belt, but I can't think of any. Intraoral gunshot wounds are almost always associated with suicide. According to Sheriff Shore, this is not a small fact that can be easily overlooked. To him, the media has chosen to ignore this portion of the story. My guy didn't kill that girl. Nobody in the media has time to do anything now. It's got to be a one-minute deal and the best headlines, the best. You know that. If you're going to do a deep dive, John, you, and, and I like your tone. I mean, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're, you know. <laughs> but if you really want to do a deep dive... There's a great story in this, and it ain't got nothing to do with Banks killing that girl. It's got to do with Banks almost getting fucking crucified. I will tell you that, that currently we are on the other side from you as far as what we think happened, but I am completely open, and I will look at anything that comes my way. Yeah. Sir, you say you're on the other side. Tell me what you think happened. You think Jeremy killed her? Uh, I mean, as conjecture, yeah. That would be where okay. I stand. I know you okay. don't because I heard your well, quote about that you would stake your career that he didn't. So I know where you yeah, stand. Oh, on he, that. Did, he, did, he didn't kill her. But but um, I will tell you this, John, and that's I, actually I'm more excited now than I was before. Because <laughs> you had said, well, I agree with you, sure, 100 percent. I probably would have hung up. Let's look at this case from Sheriff Shore's perspective. In his 153-page report, he presented evidence to support Michelle O'Connell's fragile state of mind. Sheriff Shore's report identified several text messages from Michelle O'Connell from the night of her death, and he said that they are a type of digital suicide letter. At 8.14 p.m. on the night of September 2nd, 2010, Michelle texted her friend Mindy Fox, I'm stressed out. Michelle also sent several texts to her sister Chrissy shortly before 9 p.m. The message was spread across several texts and contained some typos, but Michelle wrote, Promise me one thing. Lexi will be happy and always have a good life. Lexi was Michelle's four-year-old daughter. Michelle also texted Chrissy that no matter what, Lexi will always be safe and loved, followed by, Make sure Lexi is number one, not like us. Her sister, Chrissy, responded across several texts, What do you mean? Are you okay? I'm scared. In the middle of those texts, just before 10 p.m., Michelle also texted Chrissy, I'll be there soon. In one of his slide presentations, Agent Rogers incorrectly reported that Michelle sent this text at 11 p.m. That didn't happen. 
At 10.06 p.m., Michelle texted her brother Scott, Lexi, never forget. According to Sheriff Shore, these text messages depicted Michelle's despondent state of mind. According to Sheriff Shore's report, Michelle's co-worker stated that she was showing signs consistent with someone contemplating suicide. The co-workers, who were not named in the report, stated that Michelle would leave work early and sometimes she wouldn't even show up at all. They said that she would cry for days without giving any reason and she was losing a lot of weight. However, we were unable to corroborate any of these claims. Sheriff Shore's report also pointed to statements from Sherry Kidd, who said that Patty O'Connell told her that Michelle was having suicidal thoughts. I called Sherry Kidd, but she declined to comment on these statements. Patty O'Connell strongly denied making any such statements to the funeral home employee. John, what else does Sheriff Shore point to as a justification for concluding that Michelle's death was a suicide? The text messages are the basis of the suicide conclusion because they provide an insight into Michelle's thinking shortly before her death. But Sheriff Shore also argued that many of the theories that could indicate homicide also have other explanations. Police found a gun next to Michelle's left hand. According to her family, she was right-handed. Doesn't this point towards a stage scene or a homicide? At first, it would seem that way, but I have investigated and read about many suicides where the person used their offhand. That just seems odd to me. It does, but many of these cases are actually females who don't have a lot of experience with firearms. It isn't so much that they use their offhand, but they use both hands to fire the gun. They actually use their thumb on their dominant hand to pull the trigger. There is more strength in their thumbs, and depending on where they shoot themselves, it can provide for an easier angle of pointing the gun toward themselves. Is this what you think happened to Michelle? No, not necessarily. It's just that a possible weekend shooting doesn't default as a homicide. It could be either a homicide or a suicide. So it looks like many of the elements in this crime, which appear to initially point towards homicide, actually point towards both scenarios. And this isn't just the opinion of Sheriff David Shore. Several state attorneys echoed the sheriff's conclusions. Three separate medical examiners reviewed Michelle's case and all concluded the manner of death suicide. But what about the crime scene reconstructionist, Jerry Finley, hired by FDLE? His report concluded that Michelle's death is more consistent with a homicide. Sheriff Shore claimed that the report is meaningless because Agent Rogers did not present the crime scene reconstructionist with all the evidence. But didn't Dr. Hoban, the original medical examiner, change his opinion from suicide to shot by another? Yes, but the sheriff insists that Agent Rogers misrepresented evidence and misled Dr. Hoban. Plus, the amended death certificate was never officially filed. One of the medical examiners who looked into this case, Dr. Predred Bullock, stated that he could refute Agent Rogers' claims point by point with compelling medical evidence. Sheriff Shore also pointed to other facts overlooked by the media and his critics. The interior master bedroom door was broken with the lock in the locked position, consistent with Jeremy Banks' statement. Michelle's slip-on shoes were still on, which seemed to refute that a struggle took place. A practice shot was consistent with someone who wasn't familiar with the gun, and no defensive wounds were found on Michelle's hands. To Sheriff Shore, the pills in Michelle's pocket were her first thought as a way to take her own life, but then she opted for the firearm. Sheriff Shore provided some pretty compelling reasons to think that this death was a result of suicide. But let's talk about the statements made by the ear witnesses. You know, the two women who say that they heard a woman scream for help the night Michelle died. How does Sheriff Shore explain that? 
When Rusty Rogers first interviewed the ear witnesses, it seemed like game-changing evidence. In fact, the original medical examiner was so compelled by their statements that he switched his conclusion from suicide to death by another. Yet, it didn't hold up well under scrutiny. While we were in St. Augustine, Javier and I decided to do an unscientific experiment with the sound around Jeremy and Michelle's residence. I'm out walking, I'm across the street from the house where Jeremy Banks and Michelle O'Connell lived. I'm looking at the house where the ear witnesses were. It appears to be a pretty short distance from one house to the other. Much shorter than we were expecting. So do you want me to do the screaming? Yeah, uh, just, yeah, just, you're gonna, you gotta, you gotta write down the words. And then you want to drive over there? Yeah, you get drop. Come that. pick me up. Yeah, I think it'd be easier for you to the person to stay here because there's people over there. So I'll stay here. You drive. Yeah, write down the words. I'm gonna text you when I when I get over there. Uh, give me about you know within the, a minute. Say the words and pause in between each one of them. We did this during the day, which meant that there was more ambient noise than at 11 o'clock at night. And I'm just standing right outside Michelle and Jeremy's house. Javier was in front of the bank's residence, and I was on the cul-de-sac where the two women were located who claimed to hear the gunshots and the screams. Okay, I got the signal from John. John, can you hear me? The two houses are about 550 feet apart as the crow flies. And in between, there are two houses and a row of very tall trees. John says he heard nothing. John, can you hear me? Mm. I said it three times. Not super scientific, but surprisingly nobody came out. <laughs> All right, here's John. No, nothing. I heard nothing. But you know, at night it is a lot quieter. It is. Out. I can hear people talking. Uh, by the way, I said, I said, John, can you hear me? You would be able to hear gunshots. Yeah. Oh, that's close. I mean, two gunshots. That's much closer than I was expecting. You would certainly be able to hear the voice. Could you hear that someone was saying help? I find that highly unlikely. I didn't scream at the top of my lungs, but I did yell loud enough that I feel like I was drawing some unwanted attention. After our quasi-experiment, I asked Deborah Maynard, one of the first St. John's County Sheriff's Office deputies on scene that night, more about the location of the bedroom where Michelle died. When you walk in the front door, which direction was the bedroom where you found Michelle? Around the, as you walk kind of straight in through the kitchen, around the bar on the left. So was it behind the garage? Yes. It was behind the garage. So it was more in the back of the house? Yes. Okay. Did you notice any windows being open in the house? Not that I recall, no. Okay. See, Michelle died in a bedroom that was on the opposite side of the house from where the ear witnesses were located. And Deborah Maynard didn't remember any windows being opened. I just find it a huge stretch to think someone could have heard voices across that distance and with those physical barriers. A gunshot, most definitely. But it doesn't seem like they could hear voices from inside Jeremy's house. Most people want to put this evidence into one of two categories. Either it's conclusive evidence Jeremy killed Michelle, or FDLE agent Rusty Rogers intentionally manipulated these witnesses into saying something that wasn't true. It doesn't have to be either. The two women indicated that they occasionally heard gunshots at night. It wasn't an unusual occurrence. So they could have gotten the night wrong. 
They could have, or they may have gotten the night correct, but confused other aspects. Even if they got the night correct, what about the fact that they said that they heard a woman screaming for help? There are many possibilities here, but once their memories have been corrupted or tainted or even just confused, it's hard to separate real from false or incorrect memories. They could have confused the voices with another night or a different time during the night, or they may have just filled in the gaps in their memories once they learned more about what happened to Michelle O'Connell. Any of this could have occurred without any intentionality. We wanted to know what Sheriff David Shore thinks about the ear witnesses. You read about the case. The two girls that heard the gunshots and the scream. Remember that deal? Yes. Yeah, <clears throat> right? Well, it turns out, one of, one of them, they were friends with a girl whose best friend was Michelle O'Connell. Okay? Guess what? <laughs> turns out, those girls didn't hear shit. Those girls didn't know shit. And we knew that because in one of the early meetings, somebody brought up about calling them. And they called one of these, these girls. And they said, well, we're not going to talk to you until Rusty tells us we can. In December of 2011, the Florida governor assigned special prosecutor Brad King to take over the Michelle O'Connell case. Prior to state attorney Brad King making his decision on whether or not to proceed criminally, Sheriff Shore claims that Rusty Rogers led at least one O'Connell family member to believe a criminal indictment against Jeremy Banks was inevitable. And that family member was Scott, Michelle's older brother. Scott O'Connell worked as a St. John's County deputy. If you remember, he's the one who introduced Jeremy to Michelle. One can only imagine how he felt when deputies arrived at his door to break the news that his sister was dead, especially at the hand of Jeremy's service weapon. Here's Patty O'Connell, Scott's mother. And Scott, the day of, that you found out, what was his reaction? He and I both looked at each other like, no way, you know. We, we knew that he knew that she was having trouble with Jeremy. I knew. And it was like, there's no way. Former St. John's County Deputy Sheriff Deborah Maynard was the deputy who broke the news. She said Scott's initial reaction took her by surprise. He told us to take his guns in his car immediately, get him away from me. The day Scott found out Michelle died, he was angry, but he showed restraint. But two years later, he had enough. On the day Special Prosecutor Brad King delivered the news that the FDLE investigation was over and that he would not prosecute Jeremy Banks, Scott O'Connell lost control. The FDLE investigation was over. Brad King closed the Michelle O'Connell case on March 21, 2012. Brad King told the O'Connells that, quote, Taken as a whole, the facts as they exist did not support the prosecution of Jeremy Banks for any homicide offense, unquote. During the meeting, Scott O'Connell threatened state's attorney Brad King and his family. Shortly after that meeting, Scott called agent Rusty Rogers and allegedly told him that he, quote, had all he could take and was going to blow up the sheriff's office. Agent Rogers told him he has a responsibility to report this threat. Scott interrupted him and said, quote, I have plenty of magazines, is all I can tell you, unquote. Rusty Rogers immediately notified St. John's County Sheriff's Office of Scott's threats. As you can imagine, these threats didn't sit well with the Sheriff's Office. Deputy Scott O'Connell was immediately placed on suspension, and an internal investigation was initiated. Six days after the closing of the Michelle O'Connell case by Brad King, Sheriff David Shore fired Michelle's brother, Scott O'Connell, for his threatening statements. Several months later, Jeremy Banks got his job back 
and returned to full duty as a St. John's County Sheriff's deputy. Then, everything changed. Scott O'Connell flipped and sided with Jeremy. He filed a lawsuit against Agent Rusty Rogers and said that he was, quote, brainwashed into believing that this was a homicide. He now believed that his sister took her own life. Scott claimed Agent Rogers withheld vital exculpatory evidence and provided him with false and misleading information. The lawsuit claimed that Rusty Rogers had an inappropriate relationship with the O'Connell family. According to Scott's claims, Agent Rogers constantly called him on his cell phone, dominating his personal time. Scott believed that Agent Rogers misled him when he said that this should be a done deal, meaning Jeremy would be indicted. And just like that, Scott O'Connell was now convinced that he was wrong all along. He was misled, and this revelation, either directly or indirectly, earned him his job back. In July 2013, Sheriff Shore rehired Scott O'Connell as a deputy sheriff with the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. Here is Sheriff Shore again. Rusty manipulated that family. Read the, read the narrative of Scott O'Connell, the kid that I fired, that I hired back. Okay, I've only done that twice in my career. I asked Deborah Maynard, who knows Scott O'Connell personally, to explain this radical change in opinion. One of the things that I don't understand, and I don't think the listeners are gonna ever understand, is the Scott O'Connell thing. Because you know him personally. <laughs> I can't. I don't get it. Wow, who does that? Who goes back to someone that the day I tell you that your sister is dead and your immediate response is to get, get my guns away from me, take my car from me. At one point he flipped and is now siding with the sheriff and he, he got his job back. And he, and he doesn't speak with his mother. And, and help me understand that, because I, I don't understand that. And how do you rationalize that? To side, what was promised is my first question. What did David Shore say to Scott O'Connell to get him back in there and to make him look that good? And I, when I saw that come out, I was just, I don't, I don't know, I kept picking my jaw up. You know, it was, it was like, what? There was likely more to Scott O'Connell changing his mind and getting his job back. Here's Jeremy Banks' friend, Austin Taylor, again. The media has tried to put it out there like, oh, well, he just wanted his job back. You know what I mean? But to me, that's bullcrap. Like, if somebody killed my sister and I was convinced that that's what happened, I wouldn't give a crap about my job. You know, Roger is just kind of poisoning Scott's mind. I think that he was, he was saying things to him to make him think that you know, wow, they've got stuff on Jeremy that I, that I can't see yet, but they're convinced enough that Jeremy did this to my sister. Like that, you know, that's why he got so emotional when he found, when he found out the state attorney was, was not going to pursue it because he's like, what the hell? I thought they had all this evidence against him. And then when Scott went and read it himself, he realized, I think that he was getting, you know, that they were blowing smoke the whole time. Many people had a problem with how Rusty Rogers conducted his investigation, and some even filed a formal complaint against him with the FDLE. According to Sheriff Shore, he hired Scott back because he believed Rusty Rogers' inappropriate actions and statements during his investigation invoked Scott's outburst. He felt he needed to fix this. 
because I'm guessing that you haven't done this in other cases, but why did you decide to write the 152 page report in the Michelle O'Connell case? Oh, well, that's easy. Um, Do do you know what happened in this case? I do. Have Have you figured it out? Let me tell you what happened. So we got a bad cop, okay, that shouldn't be a cop, and it ain't Jeremy Banks. Here's Sheriff Shore talking about Rusty Rogers. He's a bad cop, and I know this is being taped, and I don't give a shit because I told him that to his face in a deposition. I don't like dirty cops. I don't like cops that make shit up. I don't like cops that coach witnesses. I don't like cops that manufacture evidence. I don't like cops that lie repeatedly in depositions. I have a problem with that. But you see, the narrative that the world loves and that the media is used to is cop kills girlfriend. Sheriff Shore may have realized that turning Michelle O'Connell's death investigation over to FDLE was a mistake. It just introduced someone into the mix who he believed was a bad cop. Sheriff Shore felt that he needed to right some wrongs. We wanted to ask Karen, Jeremy's ex-girlfriend, who was interviewed by Agent Rogers, to see if any of Sheriff Shore's allegations were true. He just, he straight up lied to me when he interviewed me, told me evidence that, like, what's true was just making stuff up. I mean, did at any point while you were talking to Rusty, did he kind of convince you that maybe Jeremy was involved? Um, no. I never thought that he, he did that. It's not clear if it was a direct result of Sheriff Shore's report, but in April 2013, Rusty Rogers' supervisor resigned from FDLE. That same month, FDLE placed Agent Rusty Rogers on administrative leave. There was more to the fallout from Sheriff Shore's report. In July 2013, Governor Rick Scott signed an executive order assigning State Attorney William Cervoni of the 8th Judicial Circuit to investigate Rusty Rogers for, quote, official misconduct. A few months later, Attorney Robert McCloyd filed a lawsuit on behalf of Jeremy Banks against Rusty Rogers and the FDLE, citing unlawful search and seizures, providing false information to obtain a search warrant, unlawful detention and warrantless arrest, and malicious prosecution. We wanted to know if Agent Rogers mishandled this investigation. Here's Chelsea Harris, the attorney representing Agent Rogers. My question was not what happened the night of Michelle O'Connell's death. My question was what were the basis of his allegations against my client? Jeremy claimed that Rusty Rogers lied in order to obtain a warrant. Some of the things that I had argued in our motion was that there was information that Jeremy Banks alleged was fabricated in these search warrants that actually never appeared in the search warrants, that actually wasn't even known to Agent Rogers at the time that the search warrants were issued. The other issue Jeremy Banks raised was that he was unlawfully arrested. We had a properly issued search warrant to search Jeremy Banks's home. It had probable cause. We'd already met that burden was our argument. And so since we had a search warrant that had probable cause to search the residence, it was completely proper for Agent Rogers to detain Jeremy Banks in order to preserve that scene. What do you think, where do you think they were getting the information to make these assertions if they weren't pulling it from the actual affidavit for a search warrant? I I can't speak on their behalf. I don't know where they pulled it. Something that, that Judge Davis had stated in his order was that rather than looking at these specific documents, there was an overall picture that was being painted. 
What about the claims that Rusty Rogers had inappropriate relations with the O'Connell family? Prior to my working in the civil field, um, I was an assistant state attorney um, here in Duval County. And one of the important things when you're an assistant state attorney or when you're handling these cases is to keep the victim's family informed. Um, it's actually one of the requirements um, under Florida laws to keep to keep the victims notified as to what's happening. And so I, I felt like that his relationship was proper. FDLE found that Rusty Rogers' investigation into Michelle O'Connell's death was quote-unquote substandard. The FDLE internal investigation found that Rusty left out details when documenting an interview, added a word to a quote within affidavits, and failed to appropriately identify a text message in a report. In 2015, FDLE cleared Agent Rogers, stating that Rusty Rogers committed no crime. The prosecutor said that his actions were legal, even if they may not have been ethically appropriate. It's common for law enforcement officers to engage in even blatant deception towards witnesses and suspects in order to get to the truth. Rusty Rogers returned to work in March of 2017, and the civil lawsuits filed against him were dismissed. One of the underlying narratives in this case is that Sheriff Shore led a conspiracy to protect Jeremy Banks from charges associated with a homicide. So this whole notion of... of cover-ups and protecting. I mean, let's think about it, John. You think I'm going to ruin my career? You think I'm going to flush my pension to protect the cop that I think murdered somebody? Think about that for a minute. You know, I got a really strange quality about me, John, that I hold our people accountable, but if one of them is being attacked and they're not guilty or they're not culpable, I'll defend them even if the New York Times shows up. You got me? Next time on Criminal Conduct, new evidence emerges. I asked him if he was all right, and he was just like, fuck that bitch, she deserved what she got. I'm moving on with my life. And it's been 20 hours since it happened, and he's calling her a bitch. And David Shore's time as sheriff comes to an end. If I can leave this and say, hey, he was a fair guy, that's good. Not about me. Not about me. I'm just sitting here in this office and the next man or woman is going to come in and they're going to do a better job than I did. That's next time on Criminal Conduct. A special thanks to our executive producer, Advertise Cast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. Each episode, John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. A new episode of Criminal Conduct is out next week. Diabolical. Vengeance. Betrayal. Bad hair. 
leaning. Hi, everyone. This is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And we have a weekly podcast called A Date with Dateline, a recap of Dateline episodes. We talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage, cell phone towers, Andrea Canning's white jeans, and Mankey's hankies. We delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes to make A Date with Dateline. And remember, don't watch alone. A Date with Dateline is a podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions. Creative Babble.